come by here, Lord, as we hear this text from the first part of Matthew, excuse me, Mark's gospel, the first chapter. Mark wastes no time in getting us involved in Jesus' ministry and mission. In the first chapter, Jesus is baptized in the river by John. He goes into the wilderness for his 40 days of temptation. He calls his disciples and to follow him in the Sea of Galilee. And then this morning's passage, he enters a synagogue on the Sabbath day in Capernaum and begins to teach and preach there. In the 21st verse, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. In September, I was able to get together with a close friend of mine named Tom at a wedding at Pauly's Island that I was doing. Tom and I go back to high school. He was two doors down from where we lived in Chapel Hill, and we were probably best of friends. I spent a lot of time at his house and listening to music and watching sports, as young high school boys are prone to do. After the wedding, we were sitting around talking about old times, and I asked him how his parents uh, were near the end of their life. I knew that his mom had died some years earlier, but that his father had recently died and, and that Tom had also taken care of his dad. I also knew that Tom and his dad were at sixes and nines. They were always at odds with each other, and, and mainly because, as I remember his father, his father knew what was right about everything. He was one of those authority types who knew the answer to every question, and even those you didn't ask. And, and he would make sure that those under his thumb, mostly his wife and two sons, Tom included, understood that he was the authority about everything. Uh, in fact, one time, uh, some of you might remember, Uh, In the days of David Thompson and North Carolina State basketball, they played UCLA, the great John Wooden team, uh, in a double overtime victory in the semifinals of the national championship and state won. And all during the game, we watched it at Tom's house, Tom's father is telling us what a lousy coach John Wooden is. Well, John Wooden, I think it's not even debatable, is probably the best coach who's ever lived even if I run the risk of sounding like a know-it-all myself. I asked Tom if he was able to get 
closer to his dad when his dad uh, had passed away. And Tom said, well, I did take care of him uh, during that uh, end time, and he did soften up a little bit. Oh, did he apologize, I asked? No, not exactly, but he did soften up. He still tried to be the authority on everything. Multiply that times 10,000, 10 million. And you have something like what Jesus is dealing with as he walks into the synagogue that Sabbath day to teach and preach to those people in Capernaum. Jesus was a Jew. We have to get that straight above all. And as a Jew, Jesus followed the Torah and the prophets. In fact, Jesus was a rabbi. They called him that. And some people say he was even a Pharisee. He would need to be a Pharisee to have the privilege to stand up in the synagogue and preach. So he walks in and begins to preach and teach. We have to understand as a Jew that they were under the massive thumb of the authorities known as the Roman Empire, that Israel was a vassal state, they were treated as a vassal state, the Roman soldiers did to them what occupying armies do to others in our day, as you can imagine, to the women and the children and the men. As a Jew, you had no power at all. You could only keep the straight path, and whatever freedom you had was usually found within the sanctuary limits itself, much like the African-American church was able to do during the days of oppression. Because of that, as a Jew in the synagogue, hierarchy and roles were very important Since they had no power anywhere else, those in positions of power and the roles they played were deeply important. It gave them structure. It gave them some sense of power when there there was none. When Jesus began to teach, the text says that they were drop-jaw astounded, which is, by the way, the same word that is used when Jesus decided to calm the storm at sea, the Disciples were astounded, which is the same word that Luke uses when the women went to the empty tomb on Easter morning and found the stone rolled away and Jesus no longer there. They were astounded. It is an incredibly powerful word about their shock. They were astounded because they were asking, who is this? He teaches with an authority unlike the scribes and Pharisees. As I thought about this, I I had to ask myself, then what was the difference? And I think it's, it's simply about righteousness. The scribes were the go to people, the go to men about what's in the Bible or the Torah and the prophets. They made the rules about what, it's, what is true in terms of the text. They were the go-tos. They had the authority. They had the privilege. Uh, they were the called elect to be in charge. But Jesus gets up and teaches unlike them. 
And so I asked myself, what was the difference? And I think the difference was that Jesus chose to come down out of the soapbox that the scribes used to preach from as they preached to the people. Jesus chose to be with the people. I think the difference is that Jesus chose to come down out of the pulpit to be present with the people of God gathered there in that synagogue that morning. Unlike the scribes and Pharisees who claim their authority through their role, Jesus gave up that authority in order to get close to his people. He connected to them. Philippians says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. Jesus stepped out of this giant role of massive authority figure and became one of us, we say, at Christmas time. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Martin Buber, the great Jewish theologian 50 years ago, it takes 50 years to finally catch up, wrote this powerful book called I and Thou about the relationship between us, uh, each other, as well as God and as thou and us. And Buber says, all real living is meeting The fundamental reality of human existence, the fundamental reality of human existence is to be found not in conceptual abstractions, but in concrete human relationships, in interaction and connection and vulnerability and humanity face-to-face, one to another. Jesus turns away from that religious power and righteousness of the priests and humbles himself by becoming authentically real and accessible to those people and to us. His authority rests in his authenticity, his realness. This kind of authentic authority changes everything even demons. I think the demon-possessed man in the story, who knows, there, there are legion how many demons there are. We've, we've all got several, I'm sure. But the demon-possessed man in this story is really the voice piece, the scapegoat messenger symbolizing the righteousness that infected the whole system that Jesus entered into in that synagogue and that church. He knew to fear Jesus because when you are righteous, your greatest fear is to be in a relationship with someone that brings out your own vulnerability and humanness. He cries out, We know who you are, we. Know who you are, Jesus. You're the Holy One of God. You have come to do us in. Love 
the power of love. You know how when we are wounded and we develop a a blister on that woundedness and, and if we're wounded there enough, a callus forms and it becomes harder and harder and harder and we have that sort of hard shell of uh, of fear around us, our being, our hearts. The only thing that breaks that is intimate, vulnerable love. Unless, for some reason, you are so demon-possessed and so hard that even love won't do it. Who knows why? Maybe for some psychopathic reason, that exists. In this particular case, Jesus saw the demon and he knew that it needed something more than just his vulnerable, loving presence. Jesus rebuked him. Sometimes only discipline would work. Jesus said to the demon, basically, sit down and shut up and come out of him. And it convulsed the man on the floor. And after that, the man was now back in community with the rest of the church. And what I think Jesus was exercising there was the demon of righteousness. Sometimes only a rebuke would work. I don't know if you saw uh, last week when Senator McCain was having a committee hearing and he invited all of the old Secretary of State's to come be a part of it, Madeleine Albright and Dr. Henry Kissinger. And when Dr. Kissinger walked in, poor guy, had one wing and a sling. He must have had a shoulder operation. He's about 90. About 15 people stood up with uh, uh, protests, screaming, murderer, murderer, put him in prison, put him in prison. And Senator McCain slammed his gavel down, and he said, in all my years of government work, I have never seen such an inappropriate response in my whole life. And then he said, well, he's not running for anything anymore, so he said what he thought. He said, sit down and shut up, you low-life scum, or I will have you arrested. Now, there are rebukes, and there are rebukes. Jesus rebuked the man, that righteous demon And out it came, and the man was now vulnerable and present and connected again. It turns out that our need for that connection is not just psychological or emotional. It is, in fact, biological and hormonal that we are created. By virtue of our creation, we are created to be in relationship to each other and to be connected and intimate. I've been reading a book lately. Someone gave me called Just Listen, which I know sounds like a book that a wife would give to their husband. (laughs) Anita did not give me this, but a friend who I suggest was probably trying to give me a, a suggestion The book is written by a guy named Mark Goldston, and he says that, indeed, biologically, we are created with the need to be heard and understood. And he calls it mirrored, that we have within us this need to be mirrored. That is to say, someone mirrors back to me who I really am, not who I am on Facebook, who I truly, authentically 
my beingness. We all need someone to mirror back to us our beingness. It's a reflection. They've done studies on Mackay monkeys, mirror neurons, they call them. When a Mackay monkey, is that how you say it? Monkey eats a banana, the neurons fire in, in its brain, and they can map it. But when another monkey watches the monkey eat a banana, those same neurons fire in the brain of the monkey who's watching but not even eating. And the point is, they call them empathetic neurons. That's the source of our empathy for each other. They call them the Dalai Lama neurons. And that we all have that deep interconnection with each other where we share each other's beingness even though we're not aware. That's intimacy. Why do we tear up when someone's nice to us but tense up when they're not? Why do we get a warm feeling inside when we're connected to someone and they are mirroring back who we are and what we are saying? Because it is the basic human need in us to be mirrored back to someone because it shows that we matter. We matter to them and to God. Goulston says that we are constantly Instead, mirroring the world back to confirm or conform to its needs and its demands. To win love and approval, we are mirroring back to the world or to our parents or to our bosses in order to get their love and approval. And each time we do this, he says, we mirror back. We are building our own deep deficit of being mirrored inside leading to a deep hunger and ache for authentic, true relationship. He wrote, In today's world, it's not hard to imagine our mirror deficit growing into a deep hole. Many people I work with, from CEOs and managers to unhappy spouses to clinically depressed patients, feel that they give their best only to be met day after day with apathy, hostility, or possibly, worst of all, no response at all. This is nearly a universal problem, he writes. So something in Jesus' presence in that day when he taught and preached, and his presence with us through the power of the Holy Spirit, is a realization that God knows us better than we know ourselves and even mirrors back that love to us in the knowing that God hears us and understands us. Now think about that in terms of the church, not only in Jesus' synagogue, but the church or any religious institution that tries to to empower itself over the people by telling them what they should do and how they should do it and what they should believe. That is not mirroring back. That is being empowered and control. Hear that now as it relates to the church. Or again, any authority or institution who claims their role and authority and power over the people. Hear that now as we do what we do. 
and how preachers are prone to do that just so easily in ways we're not even aware when we're doing it, as do session members, as do good Christian followers of Jesus, as do Sunday school teachers, as however it is that we do it when we try to impose our will and our value and our morality for the conservative church It's about what you believe and the moral life you live. For the liberal church, it's about that do-gooderism and the political life you live. In both cases, it's an oppositional presence standing over the people telling us what we have to do and how we have to do it in order to receive God's love. Hockey. The very presence of Jesus Christ comes into our midst and stands there and mirrors back to us. No matter what we do, we in our beingness are loved by God. Think what the church has done through the history of time. As we've turned our communion table into a place where only you who are worthy can come here. Or we have to believe in transubstantiation or some other theological motif. We have to have some intellectual understanding about this table and its meaning before we can actually get anything out of it. But Jesus is here, nonetheless, present through the bread and the wine. And when we gather together as a community, one to another looking each other in the eye, face-to-face, body-to-body, present incarnate, we are acting out that incredible presence of Christ as we gather. That's what communion, communion is all about. And not just here. When we go out into the world as good Christians, we're the light of Christ. We're the body of Christ. What is it we're going out to do? We're not going out to handle them out there with our authority because we know better. But instead, what if we went out there and listened to them and became present to the world the way Jesus is present with us? That'll change things. Think about the hundreds of thousands of people who have grown up under the harsh thumb of religious church authority who say, I am spiritual but not religious. I'm never going back into a church. What if they found instead not that kind of authority but Jesus' kind? And so are we invited to this table All we need to do is bring our ache and our hunger for a deep relationship with each other and especially for God. Come by here, Lord. 